The word blessing is an interesting one. It's used a variety of ways in our culture. Some by people who are of faith, and often just people in popular culture might use the term blessing. Not, not intending sort of any spiritual weight to it, but we might say things like uh, that was uh, something that turned out to be a blessing in disguise. Or we might say something like the governor gave her blessing to that decision, saying that she was affirming that. If you've ever met someone from the South, you might have heard them say something like, bless your heart. If you hear them say that, they're actually not saying bless you, and they're not concerned with your heart. So if you don't know, find someone from the South and ask them what they really mean by that term. Christians also use the term blessing, and we use it in many different ways. So often, in fact, that sometimes it can actually be unclear. What do we mean by blessing? What is a blessing from God? What is a blessed life supposed to look like? And that's what we'll consider this morning. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Psalms, to Psalm 112. Today we'll be in Psalm 112, and the Bible's near you. You can find it on page 509, page 509. I encourage you to open up a copy of the Bible or open up a Bible app just so you can see the text in front of you today. If you're newer to reading the Bible, when you open it up, the larger numbers are the chapter numbers. So we're in Psalm 112 or chapter 112. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers, and we'll work our way through those verses in our time together today. If you don't own a copy of the Bible, we as a church would love to give you one today as a gift. At the back of the room, there's a table that says free Bibles following the service. Please stop by there, just grab one of those Bibles, take it with you today as our gift to you. So during the second half of July and during August, we've been looking at selected Psalms. So today we look at Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed is the man who fears the Lord, who greatly delights in his commandments. His offspring will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in his house, and his righteousness endures forever. Light dawns in the darkness to the upright. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. It is well with the man who deals generously and lends, who conducts his affairs with justice. For the righteous will never be moved. He will be remembered forever. He's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. His heart is steady. He will not be afraid until he looks in triumph on his adversaries. He is distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. His horn is exalted in honor. The wicked man sees it and is angry. He gnashes his teeth and melts away the desire of the wicked will perish. This morning as we look at this psalm, we'll see this emphasis. Embrace God's path for true and lasting blessing. Embrace God's path for true and lasting blessing. We'll look at the psalm in three parts. So first we'll see the path of blessing. Then second we'll see the picture of blessing. And then third, the pattern of blessing. So the path, the picture, and the pattern of blessing. So first we see the path of blessing. Now, the psalm, Psalm 112, is an acrostic, meaning in the original Hebrew, there were a line for each successive letter in the alphabet. In light of that, I thought about writing my sermon and doing an acrostic, using a 26-point sermon with every letter of the alphabet. For your good, I chose not to do that. I also wasn't sure I could come up with a, a Z or an X to start a point, so, so I chose not to do that. Only three points uh, instead of 26 today. This psalm also has a close connection to the preceding psalm, Psalm 111. 
Now, in the book of Psalms, sometimes there's a connection between neighboring Psalms, as we understand them. Sometimes it's hard to tell if there's intended to be any connection at all. But with these two, we see a close connection for both of them in the original Hebrew are acrostics. Psalm 111, Psalm 112. Both of them, if you look, begin the same. Praise the Lord. Psalm 111 ends with the concept of the fear of the Lord. Psalm 112 begins with the fear of the Lord. And if you were to sit down and read both, you'd find a lot of similar language between these two psalms. Now, these psalms were originally songs sung by God's people. So they might be memorized and and sung by an individual, sung in the home, and then sung when God's people gathered together. So this psalm begins with the, the line, praise the Lord which is translation of the term hallelujah that you might often hear Christians use. So the psalm begins with this vertical upward praise of God. Praise the Lord. But then it actually turns quite quickly to being primarily horizontal. As most of the psalm seeks to instruct us on a way of thinking about life in the world, of thinking about our own lives. There's a sense in which this is now informing in urging one another forward. It's also a a psalm of wisdom that if you've read the book of Proverbs, some of this will sound almost like something you would read in the book of Proverbs. So there's a place among God's people for both vertical and horizontal praise of God. In the book of Psalms, we find both across the 150 psalms. Many of them are vertical, but some of them, like ours today, does turn horizontal. And so when we gather weekly, we sing songs And when we do, many, most of our songs are vertical. We are praising God. But also, we do sing horizontally and appropriately so. Because in these songs, we're also teaching one another as we sing. We're encouraging one another. We're we're cheering one another on in this. Because when we gather today, we're not just individuals worshiping Jesus, but we're a people together in that. So there's a right vertical and horizontal aspect of God's people worshiping. Now, our psalm today speaks of the man who fears the Lord, but this instruction would have been understood then and now as being true for both men and women, so it could be equally well be understood as the one or the person. So the psalm says in verse 1, blessed is he, blessed is the man, blessed is the one who fears the Lord. Now, this concept of blessed here is more than surface-level blessings. It's more of an an abiding, enduring happiness and joy in life. It is to be truly happy, receiving the, the good care and gifts of God. Now, what is the path of this? We see two elements of the path to blessing in our psalm today. It's not exhaustively, but we see these two elements. One, the one who fears the Lord. And second, the one who also greatly delights in his commandments. Now, before we consider this concept of fearing or delighting in his commandments, it really matters who it is we're called to fear, whose commandments we're called to delight in. So who is the Lord that we're to fear and we're to obey? What is he like? Well, I mentioned that Psalm 111 is closely connected to it. And in fact, it is a beautiful, one of my favorite psalms personally. And I was committed to you this afternoon or this week that you might just read Psalm 11 and maybe read them together just to see the similarities. 
But this Psalm, Psalm 111, if you just look over on your page, you'll see it right next to Psalm 112. Here it tells us much, certainly not all, but much about what God is like. This one we're to fear, whatever that means. One we're to obey his commands. What is he like? And we see first that he is great. Verse 2. Great are the works of the Lord, full of splendor and majesty is his work. We see all that he's righteous. Psalm 111, verse 3. His righteousness endures forever. He's also gracious. Psalm 111, verse 4. The Lord is gracious and merciful. The Lord is also generous, verse 5. He provides for those who fear him. The Lord is also faithful. Psalm 111, verse 5. He remembers his covenant forever. So he's always faithful to his covenants, faithful to his promises, faithful to his word. Verse 7, the works of his hands are faithful and just. All his precepts are trustworthy. The Lord also redeems. Psalm 111, verse 9, he sent redemption to his people. This alludes to the, the high point in the history of God's people, Israel. They had been enslaved in Egypt under the heavy hand of Pharaoh with no way of making their way out. No way of saving themselves, no way of fighting their way out. But God, in his grace, delivered them, rescued them, brought them out in the great exodus. But when he brought them out, it's not that Israelites fought some and God kind of pushed them over the edge, but it is they did no fighting. It was all the powerful hand of God by which he delivered, he saved, he redeemed his people. Well, that redeeming act was the high point in God's people, but still points to a greater, higher point that was to come and that has now come, which is the redeeming work of Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ came into this world because redemption was necessary because all people, every single one of us, have gone our own way. We were born into sin. We embrace sin in countless ways. And we have no way of saving ourselves, no way of atoning for our own rebellion, no way of paying for the debt that we owe. That of God's great love, Jesus Christ came into the world and Jesus lived a perfectly righteous life, always delighting to obey the word of God. He showed us the greatness of God, the graciousness, the mercy of God. And out of his great love, Jesus Christ, the perfect sinless son of God, went to the cross that on the cross he would die in the place of sinners like you and me. That through his death, he would pay the penalty for our sin, the debt that we had accumulated. He would pay for it. And through his death and resurrection, he would make it possible for our sins to be paid for and his righteousness given to us. The stunning exchange. We are made right through Christ. Given life, his grace given to us. He redeems. And friends, this is the most gloriously generous act in history. And this is the ultimate blessing of blessings. There is no greater blessing we could ever experience than this glorious gift of salvation that Jesus holds out for us today. Friend, if you're not a Christian, we're so glad you would spend part of a beautiful summer morning with us. And we so desire that you would know of this good news, for this is the center of Christianity gracious Savior who came to do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He offers it to us as a free gift. 
Receive by faith for any and all who'd understand their need of a Savior. So we hope, friends, you would feel comfortable if you'd like to come back next week and hear more about this. If you'd like to just kind of hang around, we would love for you to do that. And if at some point today or in the future you want to know more, to the extent you would like to, we'd love to tell you more about Jesus. For the great and glorious and gracious God, this is the one that we're called to fear and to obey. This gracious God and this redeeming God has given his people, given us his word, his commandments. And we're to trust in him. And as we grow in our trust in him, we grow to the point of even delighting in his commandments. So we see that those who fear the Lord are blessed. So to fear the Lord is a term we often see used in the scriptures, but I think at first glance probably makes us all sort of step back. Why would we want to be in relationship with one that we would fear? But friends, it makes sense if there were a God who could do all the things we see described in Psalm 111. We looked at it just a few moments ago. If there were a God like that, whose works are great, who's gracious and merciful, who redeems, who's always faithful, if there were a God like that, it would make sense that we would see that he is other than us. That he's so great, he's so powerful, he's also perfect and personal, that though we might come to know and love him, we would also stand in awe of him. We would revere him. That's the sense of biblical fear. It's not a fear that drives us to cower. It's not a fear that causes us to run the other way. But it's an awareness of the greatness of God. And the grace of God is that we can know that great God. And in the scriptures, we see that this right fear actually results in wisdom. Look at the end of Psalm 111 again. Psalm 111 verse 10 says this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. All those who practice it have a good understanding. So the psalmist is saying, the fear of the Lord is for your good. It's the very means of growing in wisdom. So if I understand I'm not wise, which if we're humble, all of us are that way. What's the path out of that? It is to grow in wisdom. What's the way towards wisdom? It is to appropriately fear the Lord, to be in awe of, to revere the Lord. As we begin to grow in this true wisdom, we see the goodness, the rightness, the wisdom of the commands of God. So then in time, we can even delight in the commands of God because we see this one that we appropriately revere and stand in awe of. He has given us these good commands. They're worthy of my trust and obedience. So we delight in the fact that this glorious, faithful, redeeming Father is no distant God. He loves us enough to give us guidance on how to live in this world, to point us to the truly fruitful, joyful, enduring life. Now, it's certainly true that some of the commands of God are challenging for us and have always been and always will be countercultural. Out of love, God does call us away from some things that we may have a very strong desire for. Out of love, he does prohibit some things from us. He calls us away from some things that that perhaps everyone around us would say, you should absolutely embrace that. You see this from the earliest days of the church and in every generation, there's some points that following Jesus calls us to that are always out of step 
with what the world says is true living. Our world today says something like this, that that most of all, you should express yourself. That that's truly living. To truly be yourself, express all of your desires. Don't let anything hold you back. Don't let anyone hold you back. You'll find true satisfaction in life. The life that's truly living is to, to fully embrace all that you feel or think or desire. Friends, Jesus says you're valuable. You're created in the image of God. So you have value and dignity. And God loves you. And out of love, he calls us to restraint at times. He calls us away from embracing some of these very strong desires. Not because he doesn't love us, but because he does love us. For not because he doesn't care for you, but because he, he cares and he knows what is ultimately for your good now and for your best eternally. So yes, he does call us away from some of the things we so strongly desire. This is no cruel father trying to simply make you uncomfortable or miserable. But it is that he loves you. He cares for your best question we always face is, will we trust that that's so? My friend, if you're not a Christian, we understand that so much of the instructions that Jesus gives to us, the Christian worldview, will often seem strange, even outrageous at times, offensive at times. And so we understand that. And to, to a great extent, that These commands and instructions won't make sense until we come to know Jesus for who he is, the gracious Savior and King, Redeemer. And then upon knowing him as Savior and King, then we begin to trust and see the goodness, the rightness of his commands. What the psalmist is describing here is what we might call godliness. Because that's to be our desire, our pursuit, to be more and more like Jesus Christ. Let's friend, I wonder if you're a Christian, do you have an appropriate awe or reverence for God? If not, you might pray that God will refresh that. Not a fear that repels you, but have we in some ways lost sight of the greatness, the magnitude, the, the purity, the power, the personal nature of our God? And we all face the question today, will we trust that His commands, all of his commands, are for our good. Especially the ones that are hardest for us today. Perhaps especially the ones that that those around you are saying, embrace this. And Jesus is saying, no, I have another way. But will we trust him today? So we see the path of blessing. But then second, we see the picture of blessing in verses two through four. So, so what does this blessed life look like? Now, this is not at all intended to be comprehensive, but we see some of the sorts of things that mark out the life of one who's knowing this blessedness from God. Holistically, this blessedness is a picture of the fruitful life, the life that is truly bearing fruit. We see verse 2, it points to the offspring being mighty 
and the generation being blessed. Now, the world of that day, there was great weight giving to having your own biological offspring. The, the larger the family, the better, was seen as a sign of blessing from God. And if you were a farmer, you needed more children in order to, to take care of the farm. And in order to continue your family line, you wanted children for that as well. So the more children were seen as a, a mark of the blessing of God. Verse 3, we see wealth and riches are in his house and his righteousness endures forever. Likewise, material blessings were also seen as a blessing from God. That if you had wealth, God was on your side, it seemed. Verse 4, we see light shines in the darkness for the upright. It's another aspect of the fruitfulness. We, we do face darkness in this life, so we don't want to lose sight of that. There is real darkness all of us face, but God is with us. The light is with us in the darkness. What about us today? How are we to think of the fruitful life today on this side of Jesus Christ coming? Is fruitfulness the same? Has it changed at all since then? In fact, it has changed because first, stunningly, through Christ, we are adopted into God's own family. Now seen as children of God, adopted by God into his family, joint heirs with Jesus Christ. Because there's no greater blessing that we could ever have. No greater blessing that you could receive. Now, what about this blessing of offspring, of having children? What may be in this life that a Christian is married and God gives to them children. Friends, this is certainly a blessing. There's no question about it. We must see children as a blessing from God. But we also need to be careful not to read this proverbial wisdom as a formula or a guarantee. Not every Christian who desires to get married does. Some who love Jesus and delight in his commands and desire marriage aren't given marriage in this life. And not all who get married and who desire to have children have children. This does not mean that they are less loved by God, nor does this imply that they have somehow done something that God is withholding in this blessing from God. The fact is we're often left with mystery in this life as we follow Jesus. That there are good things that we may desire, pray for, long for, that we don't receive. I know a number of you deeply desire to be married, and that hasn't been given to you. We, your church family, mourn with you in that very real pain. And I would encourage you not to believe the tempting thought that somehow you've done something wrong. That's why you're not married. Or that somehow God is against you in this. Friends, that's just not true. Some of you are married and you so long to be parents, and that's a good desire. And you want to have offspring, but that hasn't been given to you. And we mourn with you in that pain and disappointment. And I also want to encourage you to resist the powerful lie that God is against you or that he has forgotten you. We may never have answers or explanations in this life. But I want to encourage you to cling to what we do know. 
And that is in our Redeemer's coming and his faithfulness and his saving work. The answer cannot be that God doesn't love you. That's answered fully in the cross and resurrection of Jesus. So we don't know why. We mourn that hasn't been your experience. We encourage you to cling to what we do know of our Savior. With the coming of Jesus Christ, the, the very nature of family has changed. If you're with us just a few weeks ago in, the, in our walk through the Gospel of Matthew, we saw that there as well, where Jesus said, my, my truest family are those who trust in me and who follow me, more so than a biological family, those who love me. Those are my mother and brothers and sisters. And so some of the ways that this blessedness, this fruitfulness is experienced now is in the spiritual family of God, where every one of us, no matter our age, no matter our situation, has the chance to share the good news with others, has the chance to help to make disciples. And by this, friends, offspring, spiritual offspring are made through the grace of God. People come to a real saving faith. People are grown up in Christ. So the good news is every single one of us as Christians can join in that good work. And across the decades of life, however many years God would give to you, you can have so many more spiritual offspring than any of us could ever have biological offspring in this world. And it is a good thing God has invited us into to help to make disciples. Marriage is not essential. Singleness, we see in the New Testament, has a, a rich, valuable role in the kingdom of Jesus. Let me encourage you, ask you, are you engaging in fruitful living, of seeking to make disciples, of sharing this good news with others, helping to encourage others as they seek to follow Jesus? We also want to think with a biblical worldview on this fruitfulness in the area of prosperity. Sometimes, and we might even say often, when a person lives a life guided by godly wisdom, we'll often make wise choices. And so therefore, we might make choices not to squander material blessings. So often, Christians find a level of financial stability by walking in godly wisdom. But that's certainly not true all the time or for all Christians. They're very godly people who might live their entire lives in great poverty, always struggling. So that's certainly true as well. And as Jesus taught us, there's greater treasure than earthly treasures. So we want to give ourselves to storing up not treasure here, but treasure in heaven. So the Christian's view of prosperity is, is very different. And the good news is the true light Jesus Christ has come. He's broken into the darkness of the world the darkness of our lives, and he shines forth today. Friends, there's a truly fruitful life to be experienced. So you see the picture of blessing. But then third, and finally, we see the pattern of blessing in verses 4 through 10. So what are some of the practices or the habits or the patterns of those on this way? The psalm is not a comprehensive list, but it gives us a glimpse of some of them. What we see in the Christian life is that those who've been redeemed by Jesus are being changed by the Spirit to be increasingly more like Jesus, our Redeemer. So we pursue this pattern, these practices, these habits, 
Not, that, not with the idea that if we do these habits well enough, then God will redeem us. Then he will save us. That's not what we believe. But as we've been saved by grace, the grace of God alone, and then that grace is at work in us, changing us to make us more and more like Jesus as the Holy Spirit is at work in us. So we're always mindful of that. When we think of these habits, these practices, these disciplines we might embrace, of just understanding what they do and what they don't do for us. So first, we see that we're to be gracious and merciful. Look down at verse 4. He is gracious, merciful, and righteous. For the fact is, for Christians, we have received grace from Christ. And so then, therefore, we are to be increasingly gracious ourselves. And when we do that, we are more and more like Jesus. Look at what God is like. Look over back at Psalm 111, verse 4. The Lord is gracious and merciful. So we are seeking to be more and more like the Lord who's gracious and merciful. We are to be gracious and merciful as well. So in our interactions with others, we are to seek to extend grace. Friends, as Christians, forgiveness should flow freely from us towards others. When I was a kid, I, had a, I have one brother. He's uh, three years older. And somehow it seems like he almost always had more money than me. Probably because he's a little bit older, maybe on birthdays he got more money because of the age difference, or, but he always seemed to have money, and he was willing to loan money to me at a cost, and usually on a very short term. So he would, he would make the loan to me, he would give it to me, but still no matter what it was, it seemed like he always sort of changed the rules, and very quickly he came to collect the debt. Now he's going to collect the debt plus the interest, and, and there was no, he never showed up and said, look, I'm just going to write off the debt for you. Now, you don't have to pay me back. He never said that. It was always like, you better pay up or I'm going to take it from you one way or the other uh, as he came. He was going to collect the debt. I mean, so often we can be relational debt collectors. When people hurt us or offend us, we're not going around writing off debts. We are going to collect. There's no forgiveness to be had, or if there is forgiveness, it will be at a cost for the other person, and often a great cost. But friends, because of the grace and mercy of Christ, we should not be easily offendable as Christians. It seems our culture is everyone is easily offendable. People are offended all the time about everything. I've probably just offended you by saying that about our culture today. So now we're all offended. Friends, by the grace of God, Christians should be the hardest to offend. In your workplace, with your roommates, in our relationships, we should be slow to be offended, and forgiveness and mercy should flow freely from us. So, friend, I wonder, for those who interact with you regularly, would they describe you as gracious, merciful, and righteous? Would they say, wow, she's really hard to offend. He forgives so freely. Or would they think something else? Let's repent and let's pray for change. Change is possible. We're also seeking to be generous and just. Look down at 112 verse 5, this person deals generously and lends. 
who conducts his affairs with justice. 112 verse 9, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. The Apostle Paul quotes verse 9 in 2 Corinthians. And here's how Paul quotes it, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 8 through 11. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, and here's the quote from Psalm 112, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You'll be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. So Paul is saying, Psalm 112 is saying, we have received extraordinarily generous gifts from God. He's opened up this grace and mercy for us. So our impulse, our desire, should be to be generous. Of all people, God's people should hold what we have with open hands. We see the next thing, to give to those who are poor, those who can't give back to us, those who can do nothing for us, generous. At every turn, think about whether we have little or much, how can we be generous with what we have? God is the one who gives the seed. He's the one who brings the harvest so we can hold our money and possessions loosely and we can freely give it away. Now, what we do, we don't think this is a, a psalm somehow we can ma- manipulate God and we think, okay, well, if I freely give, then God has to give and make me rich. Friends, the God who can freely give knows us. He knows our motives. So we can't game the system. We can't trick God. But God does love to give through his people. There are people you'll encounter that God wants to bless, and the means that he wants to use to bless them is through you. He'll give to you that you might give to them. They'll be blessed, but friend, as you give to them, you are blessed as well. It seems counterintuitive that you're giving away and you're blessed, but that is what the scriptures are saying to us. And it's true that God loves to give through those who give freely. So as you give away, God often does bless those who are generous because you're the means by which he is blessing others. We're also to be firm and unafraid. Look at verse 112, verse 6. The righteous will never be moved. Verse 7, he's not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. So he says that they are not afraid of bad news. God's people are not to be afraid of bad news. But notice he doesn't say that God's people won't face bad news. That's not what the Bible teaches. There's a stream of teaching in America that is dominant and it's popular. And it says something like this, that God most exists to make you wealthy and healthy. And so therefore there will be no bad news for you in this life And especially if you have enough faith, God will keep you from bad news. The problem with that, even though it's very attractive, it's just absolutely not biblical. It's not in the scriptures. So here, the the good news is not that there's not bad news, but it is that the bad news doesn't crush us. That we're not moved in the midst of bad news. That our hearts are firm in the midst of this bad news. Friends, all of us will face bad news. We live in a broken, sin-marred world. There is still suffering and death in this world. So we're not to be naive and think there won't be bad news, nor be crushed when bad news comes. 
we don't have to be afraid. A heart can be firm and steady. Why? Look at verse 7. He's trusting in the Lord. That's why he's unafraid when there are many reasons to be afraid. Not that he's so strong, but his God is so strong. It's a beautiful summer day today, and so perhaps this afternoon, let's say you drive up to the North Shore to one of the beautiful rocky beaches there. As you go there, the, the tide is out, and so you, you wade out, quite a ways out, out into some of the rocks, and you're climbing around on the rocks, but, but you're having such a good time that you're, you sort of stop paying attention, and you don't realize the tide has come back in. The tide is rising quickly, but with the tide also, the wind is picked up as well as the waves, and so all of a sudden, these really big waves are crashing down. But you can't really make it back to the shore because the tide is already raised so high, and so, so a wave knocks you down, and you kind of stagger back up. Another wave knocks you down. You stagger back up again. The waves are getting bigger and stronger, and you're beginning to wonder, I don't know if I'm going to be able to stagger back up. One of these waves may take me all the way down. But as you do so, you look up, and you see this massive boulder not far from you. And you think to yourself, what I should do if I can just make it to the boulder and hold on to the boulder, the tide will not overcome it. The waves will not overcome the boulder, so I will go and hold to the boulder until the waves recede. I think that's good wisdom for this afternoon. That's actually not the Christian life, though. Christian life is like that and yet different. The Bible tells us that God himself, he is the rock. Jesus is the rock. But our, our goal is not that we would go and hold tight to God. And if we hold tight enough, we can make it through. If we hold tight enough, we'll be firm. That the good news, the better news is that God holds us. That's why we don't have to be afraid. Your faithful God will hold to you. He will never let you go. There will be bad news. This week, next year, some of you will endure lifelong bad news. Some of it that will not change in this life. But friend, God will keep you. God is with you. The Spirit himself dwells in you. So we are not without hope can endure the storms, the biggest storms, the most overwhelming storms, not because we're so strong, but because our God is strong. We see at the end of the psalm that the blessing of God frustrates those who are opposed to God's people. They're even angry as they reject God and they see the blessedness of God's people. Friends, there's a truly blessed life and eternity available for us, friend, available for you. So let's trust our gracious, generous God and embrace his way today and tomorrow and throughout our lives.